Welcome to the Sports ABC's podcast with Andrew, Brandon, and Chase. All right, welcome to the Sports ABC's podcast with Andrew, Brandon, and Chase. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, a few things in the world of soccer, having to do with the U.S. men's national team. And a little bit to do with MLS as well. We're going to go through some NBA topics. Um, Kyrie, LeBron, the Warriors, and much more. Um, we're going to talk about the NFL. And then we're going to go through a few random fan questions that we have. All right. So, Andrew, why don't you take us out on the U.S. men's national team? All right. Thanks, Brandon. Um, obviously, the United States men's national team just won the Gold Cup over Jamaica. And overall, I was I was pretty pleased with the game. Um, I thought Jamaica did come to play, and they actually forced the U.S. to play better than they have in their previous games. Um, obviously, Jordan Morris's winner right at the end was great because I wanted to go to bed and didn't want to see extra time. So that was fantastic for me. But I really thought that they did well, and Jamaica is a team on the rise. Um, I think that they've almost solidified themselves as third best in CONCACAF behind the United States and Mexico. Uh, with Costa Rica being in there as well. So obviously those are the four best teams. And you know, I'll, I hope that if the U.S. has their A squad or if Mexico brought their A team, that they could still handle Jamaica easily. But Jamaica did put up a fight. They ended up beating Mexico, and then they pushed the U.S. all the way for 88 minutes. So I think that Jamaica's on the rise, but the United States, the men's national team, they did what they needed to do. They won the Gold Cup, and they're headed to the Confederations Cup. Yeah, that Jamaica free kick was sick. Yeah, that was wonderful. It really was. And that's the thing. I think Jamaica has a lot of speed, and that's something that that for some reason I'm not really sure why, but the U.S. seems to really struggle against teams that that have speed, especially in their front on their offensive side. And so with Jamaica's speed, they were able to push USA's defense and USA wasn't really able to get much counterattacks because of Jamaica's speed. And so I think that is one reason why USA struggled a little bit, but I think USA just had a little too much firepower in that game to, so that, so they were able to come out on top and, um, and the Morris goal, like he's, a rookie. He won the MLS Rookie of the Year last year. He's a really good player and really young, good player. So, I mean, it was good to see a young, good player come in in the clutch and, you know, with in the 88th minute to be able to to seal off the win for for the U.S. Yeah, and I think you know, like you said about the speed, that's where not being able to call in people from Europe did hurt because we have DeAndre Yedlin, a very fast left back that could could have helped in that regard but where we don't call in those european players for the gold cup um i think that's really where the speed does hurt us is mls-based players are not necessarily as fast as some of the people we do have abroad Mm -hmm. definitely but and so let's move on um is the mls expanding too fast so obviously they started in i think it was 96 and they only had 10 teams And now we're in 2017. They have 22 teams now, 
and they're adding two more in the next two years. Um, is that too fast of an expansion? What are we looking for? From the MLS, they stated that by 2022, they want to be one of the top leagues in the world. They want to, you know, battle La Liga, the Premier League, Italian Series A. They want to be one of those best leagues in the world, and they feel like they have to expand rapidly to do this. Um, I think that the expansion, I don't know, like I feel like they are trying to expand a little too quickly, but at the same time, it is good. It'll be good for the league because um, they get more notice. They're in more cities and sell more games. And the more games you have, the more, you know, the more people are going to see it. The more, you know, more frequent things are happening, the more they're going to be on ESPN and different different sports shows. And so the more that's going on is good for the league. But to be one of the top leagues in the world, they're going to have to improve a lot more talent-wise. And I think that's that's what's really going to keep them from being a top league in the in the world at least for right now because the top players from the u.s i mean they have to get natural born u.s the top players all of the top players have to play in the mls if the mls wants to compete but with you know pulisic and and other and even tim howard top players playing in um in other parts of the world in other leagues then why we they have to be able to keep those players, and if we can't keep those players, why would we? Why would the MLS be able to get the top European and and South African teams and stuff like that? So, and their players, and so it, it'd be, I don't I don't feel like until they are able to get the top players to stay in the U.S., they're they're not really going to be able to to compete. Interesting points, everyone. Um. The way I see it, um, you know, expansion, uh, you know, like Chase said, uh, getting it in more cities, um, there's going to be more um, more exposure to it. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, the important thing is uh, getting TV deals, you know, like the big TV deals that the NBA signs, um, getting these these games televised to a, a broader audience uh, and so i think in order for ex- expansion to be worth it they need to get people to actually watch the tv games and i don't know where the mls is as far as televised televised games andrew do you do you have those i can see if i can find it real quick But yeah, I see where you're coming from, Brandon. I mean, TV deals are huge, and you know, the more TV, the bigger TV deal that they have, the more important it, is, the more easy it is, I guess, to be able to get to those different audiences and be able to to broadcast more people. It, and that's, you know, always been been important. I mean, I feel like we see more international, especially from like the Premier League and and um, uh, La Liga and stuff like that, where more than we do MLS because I feel like those those games are people want to watch those games more because they have the international stars like Messi and Ronaldo so those those games are going to be more interesting and and people are going to want to watch them more than MLS because they just they have more star power yep so looking at the ratings just real quick Google search tells me the MLS ratings were down eight percent compared to last season 
Um, but that was mostly due to the Spanish show or the Spanish network Univision. It was down a little bit on there, but as far as Fox and ESPN, they're up to about 318,000 viewers. Um, so they're not doing poorly. Um, and on that same note, interestingly enough, the MLS received a $4 billion TV deal offer from an international company that said, we will tele televise MLS for $4 billion. But MLS turned it down strictly because in the contract they said they would have to adopt promotion and relegation. Which, for anybody who might not know what that is, um, top teams like La Liga and the Bundesliga, anywhere in the EPL, the Premier League, the top three teams from the second bracket, so it would be compared to like a D-League team, the top three teams every year are promoted into the top tier. And the bottom three teams from the top tier are relegated or demoted down to the next tier. And so the United States and MLS does not want to adopt promotion relegation. They're against it. Um, and so that's one reason that they turned down a $4 billion TV deal. Because for them, they want one major league and then that's basically it. They don't want to have to worry about any of the TV deals or anything between promotion relegation. And also the big deal with it was their current contract with ESPN Fox Univision goes through 2022. And so they actually shouldn't have even been offered anything because they shouldn't be considering any TV deal until 2022. But it was, interestingly to, it was interesting to me that promotion relegation is such a big deal internationally. Um, that's what's going to be the difference to me. If they want to be that top league, they're going to have to do promotion relegation because that's what the top teams in the world do. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, it adds, they can't Americanize it yeah, and definitely. just say, we'll have a playoffs and everybody in the world's going to like it mm -hmm. because that's not how soccer's played in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that that adds a different, that promotion relegation adds a different competitive, um, it, it, it adds more to the games, I feel like. It adds more to the regular season. It adds more to, to the even the championships and stuff like that where, you know, teams that aren't necessarily good have to go down. And they have to play well if they want to stay in the major leagues. And so it, I think that that could really help. I think that it would help with the competitive nature of it and to be a top league. And I think that they're just trying too hard to please people which i mean the europeans they the european leagues have throughout like the premier league probably has through all of their levels 60 or 70 teams and so they're able to promote and re relegate because they have such good teams all through and you know the top teams all always stay because they're always the top teams but those bottom teams have to be competitive have to play harder because they'll they're at the risk of getting relegated and so i feel like that'll add that adds a different competitive advantage to those those european and and other leagues that the usa that the mls i mean doesn't add and that they feel like they want to be too much like the nfl and the nba and stuff like that instead of actually you know following a soccer path trying to be more like soccer instead of trying to be more like usa leagues and that's true. It's like exactly what you said. Every game matters in promotion relegation. 
if you're in the bottom of the table, you're going to fight for every point because in the European, in the EPL, the Premier League, if you get relegated from the top tier to the Champions League, the next tier, you lose TV deals the next year. Mm-hmm. So you lose money as a club. So every game is important. It'll it basically it eliminates tanking because there is no advantage to tanking. Mm-hmm. So it makes the manager come with a full team almost every time, makes them fight every game, and I do think that it's more entertaining because if you lose, you don't just lose a game. Your coach might not just be fired, but your team could lose, you know, potentially millions of dollars depending on how long you stay in the lower league. Yeah, exactly. Um I don't know about this, but uh, do um, does the MLS have a draft? Yes, the MLS has a super draft where they draft players out of college, and so that would be something that would have to be addressed if they did promotion relegation. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan Morris, I believe, was a number one pick in the super draft. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they they. I don't think any of the European leagues have drafts, do they? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I didn't think so. They promote from their academies. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Um, so let's move on to the NBA. Chase, why don't you take us through the rookie performances from the Summer League? Uh, who do you think did the best? Who were some some standouts? Who did better than you anticipated? And who seemed like flops? Okay, so... Um, just a couple names um, that I feel like definitely out, not really outperformed their expectations, but that played really well. Um, definitely first off was Lonzo Ball. Lonzo, I feel like he had a couple rough games, but as a whole, he played really well. He definitely showcased what he is all about. And in the passing game, he's got tremendous court vision. He's got some of the best vision I've seen in a long time. He can he sees the court better than anyone I've ever seen since John Stockton. So I mean he's he's got the court vision. He's got the the passing ability and he's got the scoring ability. He can finish in the lane. He's got the size. He's you know six four, six five. He's a bigger guy. Um he's a bigger point guard so he's able to finish with contact and be, and take it stronger to the hoop. My only concern with him is of course his shooting motion. Um, it showed that if he's pressured a lot in that summer league, that if he if he's playing a longer defender, playing someone you know six eight six nine, someone who can really bother his shot, he does not shoot well. So that's that's my only really concern with him. And a couple more was Donovan Mitchell, of course, have to men- mention the Jazz guy and Josh Jackson from the Phoenix Phoenix Suns. I think those three were my, probably my top performers. Um, Donovan Mitchell played. Um, as good as anyone could have expected, probably better than anyone could have expected. I mean, he led the summer league in points per game, averaged over 28 points a game in the summer league, had the best single game points, um, point, point outing out of any player. Um, and the only reason he didn't make the first team summer league was because the Jazz didn't win any games which I think was a li- it's a little ridiculous, especially with how the summer league is all set up that you know, the best players and stuff aren't always going to win a lot of games. It's just not how, how it is. And so, and, and the Jazz kept him from playing in back-to-back, so he probably missed three games there that he could have added more 
to his resume, but I feel like he he played really well. I mean, he had a 37-point outing against the Grizzlies, brought them back from down 15 to force it into overtime. And Josh Jackson is just a physical freak. He's a, he's a dominant player. He's 6'9". He can play power forward or small forward. He's, he's more athletic than anyone I've seen coming out of the draft since LeBron James. So the guy's just a physical freak and can play the two, three, or four, and is just a dominant athletic freak. He, he's still rough around the edges, not a great shot, but he's he's going to be a dominant, dominant defender for the Suns, and he's going to be a really good offensive force in the key, and let's hope that they can develop his three-point shot. But um, I think, I don't know, like all of the top players performed really well, um, the only one that I think did not perform as good as he thought he was going to perform, as everyone thought he was, was Jason Tatum for the Celtics. And that's not just because I hate the Celtics now. It's um, it's because um, Tatum came in, you know, he's the number three pick. He got picked over Josh Jackson, which I thought was absurd. And um, he's, he's, he's a dominant scorer. He's got great, great offensive scoring potential. But he's just, he just doesn't have the size, his height. He's, I mean, he's 6'8", but he's, from what I know, he's only like 215. I mean, he's not very big. He's not very strong. And so as you noticed, um, when they played the Jazz, Mitchell pushed him all over the court and held him from the second half on to four points on one of 11 shooting. I mean, he shut him down, and Mitchell's only 6'3". So, I mean, for a 6'3 player to be able to push you around a 6'8, that can't happen. And so, and he just, I just felt like he got pushed around a lot and didn't play as well as everyone thought he would. But those are my. Yeah, it's like me pushing Brandon around. Yeah. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, Brandon's about 6'5 and I'm 5'10. So, you know, I see where he's coming from. Yeah. So, I mean, guys um, guys that size should not be able to push a 6'8 guy around and really be able to <laughs> to, to pester his shot. It, it shouldn't happen, especially in the NBA. So, I mean, it's it just shouldn't happen. So, you, I just felt like that he just doesn't bring what everyone thought he would. And I definitely feel like he's going to be the biggest bust in the draft. I don't think he'll be as good as everyone thinks he is. I mean, he'll be a good offensive player, but if he's going to be as good as everyone wants him to be, he's got to gain at least 30 or 40 pounds. I mean, the guy's got to bulk up a lot. I mean, he's not big at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we'll see throughout the season. Um, keep an eye out on, out on those guys. Uh, I, I definitely agree with a lot with, with what Chase said. Um, having trouble talking again happens sometimes. Um so yeah, let's let's move to Kyrie. Um, there were a few reports that the Heat um, and the Suns both have offers out to the Cavs for um, for Kyrie. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the Suns package includes, but it looked like the Heat were willing to trade uh, Goran Dragic and I. Let's see, Justice Winslow is that. Am I thinking correctly? Yes. Justice Winslow. Um, uh, personally, I'm not sure who comes out on top on that trade. Um, you know, th- uh, I think Goran Dragic is a great point guard. Um, obviously, he's not where Kyrie is. Um, 
Kyrie for all of his deficiencies defensively. He plays you know, overall really good basketball. An understatement. But, um, you know, Goran Dragic is, is really good. He's fairly athletic. Um, and from what I've seen, he, he's a decent defender. Um, and seemed like the Heat drafted Justice Winslow because LeBron had said he wanted to play with him uh, back when LeBron was with the Heat. Uh, so what do you guys think? Do you guys think that that's a good deal for either team or do you think that neither team really comes out on top in that? Well, first off, I just want to jump back really quick before I answer your question and clarify my comment. I looked it up. Jordan Morris was not in the super draft. So I just want to make sure I'm keeping my facts straight. Then to answer your question, you know, I don't see Kyrie really going to the heat. I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, anybody wants Kyrie, but for the Cavs, I think they could get a lot more um, for him. I like Gorn. He's a great scorer. You know, Justice Winslow's. he's got some grit. He can play. But I just, I see it kind of as sixes. I don't think that they, the Cavaliers definitely would not get any closer to Golden State with that trade. And I think that as far as the Cavaliers are concerned, any trade they make has to get them closer to Golden State. Number one, to keep LeBron in future years. And number two, just to even have a chance at the title. You know, we think they can get to the finals fairly easy, but trading Kyrie and not getting at least as good of players back is, it doesn't make sense, especially where Kyrie is still under contract. Definitely. I think that from what I'm seeing, I do not think the Cavaliers are going to trade him. I don't think that they're going to want to get rid of him. Um, I think that they could easily, and I probably think they should because, I mean, there's plenty of teams that are willing to throw away everything for for a player like Kyrie. I mean, a lot you you've noticed that throughout the years, you've seen superstar players who want trades that are able to get huge amounts of players in return for that. I mean, the with the Kevin Garnett trade to Boston, he there were... I think 12, I think, players involved, and they sent KG and one other player to Boston for 10 players and a couple draft picks. I mean, that's crazy. That's a brand-new roster. Yeah, really. I mean, they, they got a ton of players in return. And, I, I mean, I'm not saying that Kyrie Irving is on the level of a future Hall of Famer and Kevin Garnett, but he's definitely a very good player. And so I think mm-hmm. that, at least right now, the Cavaliers are expecting – to get at least four or five players, four or five solid players for Kyrie. And that's really to be able to compete well, they need that. I mean, I do re- I do really like the Heat trade. I think Goran Dragic is a very underrated player. He is, he's a, he is well above average defender. He's a good scorer, and he's a lot, lot better passer than Kyrie is. So I think that that plays better into how LeBron wants to play. But... In the long run, Kyrie, I feel like, gives them a better chance to beat Golden State because of his scoring ability than Goran Dragic does. And so I don't feel like that trade makes a whole lot of sense. But And I just don't see a lot of teams being able to give up the amount of players that Cleveland thinks that Kyrie's going to demand. Or well, wanting six teams to give have up. tried. Six teams have submitted offers. The Suns, the Knicks, the Spurs, the Clippers as well as the Heat. They've all submitted offers for Kyrie. 
Um, I personally, well, if he does leave, I think he probably goes to the Knicks or honestly the Sixers. You know, the Sixers just seem like they're the type of team that they'd be willing to deal Fultz for Kyrie along with some other picks. They just kind of seem like that's what the Sixers would do. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they seems like they'd go all in for a player of that caliber. Um, we've seen them, you know, tank or make dumb trades. And I just think that, you know, you can't mention a huge name trade without at least throwing the Sixers around in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, I looked it up um, and the Suns, it looks like the report is that the Cavs would have made the trade with the Suns if the package had included both Eric Bledsoe, Josh Jackson, and a future first round pick. And personally, if I were the Suns, I, it doesn't seem like the Suns would give that up. And if I were the Suns, I definitely wouldn't. I think that is a bad trade. I really like Eric Bledsoe. Um, he's not quite to the level of Kyrie, you know, but I think he's an excellent player. And then like Chase talked about earlier, Josh Jackson is just, just seems like a special player. So, um, I definitely wouldn't do that either. And it seems like the Suns won't. Yeah, definitely. And Josh Jackson, I mean, Josh Jackson has the potential to be a transcendent player, has, has the potential to be a player on the level of Carmelo and LeBron. I mean, his his athletic ability is <clears throat> off the charts and his his defensive ability is better than LeBron's which i mean when LeBron got drafted wasn't a great defender had the athletic ability to be a good defender but just didn't try as hard as he does now when he first got drafted but Josh Jackson you can tell just busts his butt on defense has the conditioning to be able to play every every single time on defense play hard play well um, block shots uh, gets in passing lanes just uh, you watch him and you can just tell how hard he plays he plays hard he plays he's pedal to the metal all the time and it's just fun to watch and he's definitely got the ability and the potential to be a transcendent player so giving up both Bledsoe and Jackson uh, I mean I feel like I'd give up Bledsoe if I was the Suns but Jackson would Jackson and Booker would be on the zero no don't even bring up because you're going to get rejected automatically if you bring up Booker or or Jackson because those two players are the type of players that you want to build around that you have to build a team around and so you know everyone else on the roster especially with no long-term commitment yeah exactly Mm -hmm. you know with no long-term commitment unless it's somewhere where Kyrie says he wants to play I wouldn't even be bothering to try to trade for yeah exactly I mean they'll get just real quick also, you know, you talk about a couple of transcend, you know, great players, and I think this could be a great draft class. Like you look at the talent that's in there with Josh Jackson, you know, Lonzo, even Donovan Mitchell, Fultz. I think that this draft class could be special. I think that it could be talked about as one of the greatest, you know, depending on how, how everybody reaches their ceilings. Definitely, yeah, probably the best draft class since the the draft where LeBron and Carmelo. And all of those great players were drafted that year. 2003. Um, that would be the year. Thank you, Chase. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so next topic, Andrew. Um, do you think that LeBron will have to relinquish his throne? Do you think that his his time as king of the NBA is coming to an end? You know, my answer is a definite yes. Um, you know, I'm sorry to Brett Favre here, but age doesn't know defeat. You know, age is kind of going to be the deciding factor that no matter how many players try to play until they're dead, it's just not going to happen. 
I just think that, you know, Kevin Durant's proven that he's ready to take over that crown right now. Um, he's a great player. He plays for a better team. You know, he's got a similar skill set without the size. He's got the shooting. He's got the length, the athleticism. You know, I just think that especially if Kyrie is traded, LeBron can't be called the best player because Kyrie makes LeBron better. But, you know, with the Warriors being the number one team in the league and nobody in the East really challenging the Cavs, I just don't think you can call LeBron the best because he's either not playing against the competition or when he is, he's not even the best player on the floor. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that it's already over. I I mean, it might be a little blasphemous to a lot of NBA fans, but LeBron's age is over. It, it ended last year when they got crushed in the finals. I'm sorry to say, but he got destroyed and he looked weak. He did not look that good. Like everyone says, like... LeBron should should have won the MVP in the last three NBA Finals, which, one, I think is ridiculous. And two, I think that, you know, Kevin Durant proved that he was a better player. I mean, the way, the way that Kevin Durant played defense, the way that he blocked shots, the way that he scored and took control of every single game down the stretch, it's, it's Kevin Durant's league now. I mean, I feel like LeBron just doesn't have what it takes to be able to compete with Kevin Durant head-to-head. He just doesn't have it. He doesn't have the scoring ability. He doesn't have the shooting. And Kevin Durant's proven that if he if he's able to, if he's willing to try on defense and to play hard on defense, he is the best player in the league. And it, LeBron showed it during the regular season. They didn't play well. They had a terrible defense. And he, the whole season, he was asking for more players. He was asking for more playmakers, better defenders, better players. And it's like, how would you feel if that was your star player on your team was like, my players suck. I need better players. Like, how would that make you feel as another player? That would suck. I would, and that's the reason why Kyrie wants to be traded. They don't want to be treated like second meat by this, you know, he's tired of being LeBron's son. He's tired of all that crap. And so it's becoming a part where no one wants to play with LeBron because nothing's good enough for LeBron. And so it's... When no one wants to play with you, when no one, you know, when you're taking so much star power just to be you, and when you're complaining about everything about your team, why would anyone want to play with you? And you can't be a star player unless you have a team. You can't be a championship type player unless you have a championship type team. And LeBron just doesn't have it anymore. Yep. I agree with you there. Um, you know, I think that the Cavs as an organization are imploding right now. Uh, they are basically losing all traction that they have gained in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the worst and, run teams in the league. Yeah. It's and, because of LeBron. <laughs> it really is. Well, I could say that it's because the the organization has decided to cater wholeheartedly to LeBron and not look to anything other than LeBron. They've basically made him a player owner and it just, you know, it, it's imploded. Um, and I think this last year, uh, like Chase said, when he was asking for all of these, all of this extra help, um, I think he saw that the Warriors were just a better team, you know, by far. They just, he knew that they were going to outclass them in the, in the finals. 
And so he got desperate. <clears throat> he didn't trust his his current team, which, you know, I can't say I, I blame him, you know, because the Warriors were, you know, a thousand times better than the Cavs. But, you know, it definitely, I think it should have been foreseeable that Kyrie asked for a trade out, that uh, the GM, uh, you know, quit. And I just think that the Cavs as an organization are done. And I don't see any other organization other than maybe the Knicks or the the Heat that would even consider um, taking on the added responsibility that it is in coaching LeBron. I'm sure um, the Lakers would. Yeah, 100%. I'm sure Magic would yeah. be able to do that. Well, I think that you need someone like Magic as a front office personnel to be able to control someone like LeBron because Magic has if not more star power, the same star power that LeBron does. And, you know, Magic won five, six championships. Magic had had an era where he was dominant. I mean, in in the in the nineteen eighties, they made it to the finals seven times out of the ten years. And so they I mean they were a dominant team and, and they were led by Magic. I mean that he was a dominant player. He he was a LeBron type player. And so it's, you know, for him to be able to be controlled and to be, you know, for someone to be, for front office to be able to control LeBron and to keep him in check, you'd need that star power. And Cleveland just doesn't have it. And personally, I think Dan Gilbert's an idiot. I mean, I think he's, he's probably the stupidest owner in the league. I mean, he's, he's an idiot. He, he fired a GM who your star player really likes, who has done everything to please your star player, to please the one player that is the only reason your your team has a championship, is the only reason your team has done anything in the last 15 years. I mean, is the only reason your your team is even on the map. And so you fire the, the, the GM that kept LeBron there, that brought LeBron to Cleveland, and you fire him. I mean, that I just don't see why he did it. And then... A player, and then they they have the chance to hire Chauncey Billups to another player that LeBron really wanted, and you lowball him. I mean, on average, GMs, starting GMs, their first job make about four million dollars a year, and the Cle- Cleveland offered Chauncey Billups one point eight million for for their GM position, which that's that's ridiculous. not enough to deal with LeBron. No, no, not even close. No, exactly. And so they completely lowballed him. And why would anyone want to go into a situation where you have zero stability, zero anything? Because LeBron's contract is up in a year, Kyrie's contract is up in two years, and you have a roster that is full of thirty-five and older. I mean, you have a crap ton of players that just that you have no future with. You don't have any draft picks. You don't have anything. And so why would a, a person like Chauncey, who really could be a, a really good front office person, and you completely lowball him, and, and you go to a team, to, to come to a team that, yeah, has LeBron, that is probably going to leave in a year. And yeah, has Kyrie, which, I mean, now everyone knows that Kyrie wants a trade, but that at that time, no one really knew that, and Kyrie hadn't even requested his trade yet, but had... You know, just Kyrie's contract is up in two years. Your two dominant players are going to be gone. I mean, yeah, you have 
you have love locked down until like 2021 or something like that, but you can't build a team around LeBron. I mean, around love. around love. Yeah. LeBron. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like the sent the unanimous decision between us is the age of LeBron is done and the age of Cleveland is done. That's what it kind of sounds like yes. to me. But <laughs> next question is how long will the Warriors remain dominant? You know, the Cavs had their run. They turned it over to Golden State, and how long are they going to keep it up? Chase? Okay. Or Brandon. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. Um, so my thoughts on this are that the Warriors, um, as long as the Warriors are, you know, 110 times better than any of the other teams in the league, the players are going to get bored, I think. Clay Thompson is probably going to be the first to to jump ship, um, and I don't I don't see Draymond Green leaving unless you know he's he's forced to, but I do think Clay Thompson is one of those guys. Uh, I don't see him as the kind of guy who's like I need to run a team, but he's the guy that has the talent to run a team, and I. I just think that the Warriors will get bored. Um, you know, going almost 16 and 0 in the final in the in the playoffs, you know, going 16 and 1. Um if you're that much better than any of the other teams, I I when I play basketball, I hate playing against teams that are that much worse than me. I like to win, but if we're just, you know, walking through every team that we play, it's just not fun. And so I, I think if they're this dominant for much longer, they're going to get bored with it. And I think Clay Thompson's going to leave. And then once that starts, I think it may, it'll start a chain reaction where they, they have to make moves or the other stars have to, have to go somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it has to deal with the almighty dollar. I mean, everything in the NBA, everything in any professional league boils down to money. And yes, there's star players that are willing to take pay cuts, but like Kevin and Steph, they're going to get their money no matter what. They're going to get paid. They've got lucrative shoe deals. They're going to get a crap ton of money no matter what. It's the players that are like Sean Livingston, the bench players, you know, um, that are going to require the money. I mean, they're the reason why, I mean, Kevin Durant took a pay cut so that they could keep Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston. I mean, he took a pretty big, a pretty substantial pay cut. And those players are, you know, other teams in the league, every team in the league has proven that they're willing to overpay for players like that. They're willing to overpay players. And those middle of the run players, they don't have shoe deals or lucrative shoe deals. I mean, yeah, they probably have little shoe deals, but they don't have lucrative endorsement deals. They've got the, the majority of their money comes from their NBA salary. And so those players will go where the money takes them. And so they're not going to be able to afford this for much longer. I mean, I think the next two or three years, they'll probably stay in Pat. But after that, when the Sean Livingstons and the Andre Godalas are getting close to max deals from other teams, because it's going to happen. They're going to be offered those huge deals that the Warriors just cannot match. They just don't have the money for it. And so that's what it's going to start crumbling down is when those contracts are up, when, you know, even Clay Thompson, when his contract's up, 
the Golden State's not really going to be able to afford it because it's going to be same time Draymond Green and you know Kevin Durant's deal is up in another year. I mean, he only signed a one year deal, so it's you know he's it's not going to be good for them in the next couple of years. They're going to have to really fork out the money if they want to keep everybody. They're going to have to pay huge luxury tax luxury tax fines, and they're just not going to be able to afford it. So. Plus, I think especially as they win championships, because these middle of the run guys, once they win a couple of championships, they're like, okay, now maybe I want one more payday before I retire. Or maybe I want to go somewhere else after they get the championship. There's a lot of players that they look for the championship first, then the money next, or maybe the reverse order that, you know, they say, I'm going for the money right off the bat. Then once I have 50 million in the bank, you know, I'm going to go after and I'm going to chase a title. You know, so I mean, I think that's also going to be a problem. Okay, guys, but, I've got to sign off for the day. Um, you guys, uh, you can finish okay. going through the topics. Thanks, Brandon. We'll I've catch you next week. Take off. So, okay. Okay, so it's Chase and I continuing on NBA topics, and should the NBA do away with divisions and conferences? Is it even worth having divisions? I don't think so. I think it's just, it's just getting too muddled too complicated and so i think that the 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 teams that are strong um you know nine of the ten best teams in the league are in the west and so it's just it's just too much i mean the best teams are not making the playoffs i mean this year it's going to be even more a bigger drastic change than it was last year i mean the east has won has had a winning record against the west in one of the last 16 years. And so they've, the East has never performed very well against the West. And this year is it going to be even worse because two star players have come over to the West to make West teams even better. And so the, I, I mean, I see probably two or three teams in the East making the, making the playoffs with a losing record. And that is not good for the league. No one wants that you know, those blowout wins against Eastern teams that really aren't that good either. I mean, they're going to be some crappy first round, first, first round series in, in the, in the East. I mean, the top four teams in the East are going to be Cleveland, Boston, and then who, I mean, Milwaukee, probably Toronto probably, and Washington. Yeah. Toronto, Washington, Milwaukee will be good. And so, I, you know, I just don't see a lot of teams being able to do well. And so they've just, and so they, they just have to do it. They have to make it more interesting. And so to delete conferences and to just blow it all up and even keeping the conferences and keeping them playing that way, but for the playoffs, doing just a 16 seed, you know, top top 16 teams make the playoffs that seeded that way to where you could have matchups like Cleveland and Utah in the first round or, you know, putting the best teams, the 16 best teams in the playoffs. That's what needs to happen. You know, interestingly enough, last year, if they would have done this, there would have only been seven Western Conference teams and nine Eastern Conference teams due to record. Yes. And that's where I struggle is because I think conferences are necessary strictly because everyone cannot play everyone the same amount. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the West plays the West more than they play the East. So their records, the records are going to reflect that. And I think that's the biggest thing is that the Eastern Conference, yeah, they had, was it three three teams that were right at 
But what would they have been if they would have had to play Golden State the same amount of times as, you know, Portland? Mm-hmm. So I think that that that's where I struggle is how are you going to make it the records equal with the conferences? It's is kind of where I'm getting at. Yeah, it's true, and that's where it's going to be difficult to try and rearrange the schedule because people, com- you know, all the teams complain about travel and which shouldn't be that much of a complaint now with, you know, chartered flights and, and all of that. And so the travel shouldn't be that big a deal. And, you know, with Eastern conference teams playing Eastern conference teams all the time, their, their records are going to be a little, you know, swollen because, you know, the Sixers playing against the Hornets, like they're not good teams. Either of them are not good teams, but one team has to win and they play them four times where you know the the Lakers and the Jazz have to play the Clippers and the Warriors and the Spurs four times it's just you know it just doesn't equal out so they'd have to either change the schedule making it to where every team tries to play you know keep divisions and keep divisions you know the the as they are and have division championships and stuff like that but trying mixing up more of who plays who and <clears throat> trying to even up the amount of games you play against Eastern and Western Conference teams. And so I, I don't know how they do that if they'd, you know, because they can't add more games to the season. The season's already long enough, but they, they'd have to figure out a way to, to even out the schedules. Yeah, I'm, you know, that's above my pay grade. Yeah, I'll let really. somebody figure it out, and then we'll talk about it in future dates. <laughs> yeah, really. So, Chase, I want to hear your thought on LeVar Ball and his AAU shenanigans, so to speak. You know, what's going on with LeVar and why are people still listening to what he has to say? I don't know. I don't know why people are listening. He's one of the biggest idiots I've ever met. I haven't met him, but I've ever seen. And so it's, you know, as a basketball and a football official, I, you know, I deal with a lot of people that are like LeVar and people like LeVar, LeVar Ball himself, are ruining the game. They're making it especially the AAU, high school, Little League, things like that, they're ruining the game. They're making it harder for people to be able to enjoy the game. They're making it about themselves instead of about the kids. And as an official, they're making it harder to officiate because they're trying to make it about themselves. I mean, with, with LeVar the other day being giving a technical from, from, a, from an official and freaking out about it, freaking out how the, the official had had already chosen about giving him a technical in that game had already said that yeah you're gonna get a technical in the game because you're stupid because you freak out about every little call but he he forced adidas who was running the league who was running the aau tournament for there that he forced adidas to replace the official in the middle of the game which one no no coach should have the power to do that even if he brings a lot of money in he should not have the power to do that Nobody should have the power. Exactly. And so that right there sends a message to officials and to the players, especially, that if they complain enough, they can get what they want. And that just can't happen. And then he well, gets a at it. later like, in the game. Like... Oh, yeah. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, he gets a tactical later in the game, gets kicked out of the game, and had such a big tantrum that they had to stop the game. They had to finish the game because he was freaking out about it. He had such an issue with it. And that can't happen. I mean, that's you're a coach. You're not supposed to be the focal point of the game. The players are supposed to be the focal point of the game. 
the player people are there to watch the players not you the players the people should be there to watch the players and as officials if they're Officials' numbers have decreased over the last 15 years by almost 40%. I mean, it's crazy how small the numbers of officiating gets. And it's, you know, in in football this year, I'm, I was looking at the, for, for my district in Idaho in the Pocatello area, there's not a lot of officials. We, we lost about 15 or 16 officials from last year to this year. That's a huge amount of officials. That's a full crew of football officials. And so... We, that's good for me because I get to do more games and I get more money, but it's bad for the teams because some, if, if you don't have enough officials, they have to cancel games. You can't have games without officials. It just doesn't happen. And so we've, we've had a chance this year. I mean, I know in the sixth district, they're even lower than us and they have more schools. Last year, from what I, I was talking to the sixth district commissioner about it, and he said that they had to cancel five games last year, five varsity games, the top games, because they didn't have officials to be able to cover it. And so they had to reschedule and do other things. And it's just, you know, it's it's becoming to the point where no one wants to officiate because they get such a, such abuse. It's a difficult job and you can't win. You can't do anything because you have parents down your back no matter what you call. You have coaches down your back no matter what you call. And... It, they just screw with you, and so it's it's hard to be an official. It's one of the is the most difficult job in sports, and so to be a good official, it's it's difficult. And so there's people aren't coming out as officials. People are quitting after their first or second years because they don't want to deal with all the crap that they get, and it's just it's hard to keep officials. And so people like Lavar are making it that much harder. Right. And then my biggest thing about LeVar is a coach should be a role model for the people that he coaches on no matter what level. And so what is LeVar teaching his team with his tantrums and trying to use his newfound fame to get what he wants? Um, you know, a foul is a foul. A technical is a technical. If the ref calls it, I don't care if you're the president of the United States or, you know, an eighth grader. A tech's a tech. Get over it. Um but let's move on to NFL real quick. We've only got a few minutes left. So NFL season, give me your top three teams in the league next year and your bottom three teams. Okay. Um, top three teams are going to be the Patriots, of course. I mean, the Patriots are going to be dominant again. I think the Falcons are going to be up there as well. And <clears throat> I think that after that, it's going to get pretty difficult. I mean, a lot of teams have changed. I think it's probably going to be the Packers. I mean, the Packers added a dominant tight end, which Aaron Rodgers really, he uses his tight ends a lot. And so for him to have a dominant tight end like uh, Bennett, it's it's going to be really good for him. And I think that'll, that'll push the Packers up to being able to really compete with the Falcons in the playoffs instead of getting blown out like they did last year. But <clears throat> um, I think the Patriots are really going to run over everybody again. I think that they're going to be just dominant again but that all hinges on the health of Tom Brady um and then the bottom three it's gonna it's gonna be the Browns the probably the Rams and the 49ers I mean the Niners are gonna struggle that hurts me (laughs) I'm a Niners fan yeah it's true (laughs) and I mean I'm not my team's not gonna be much better with the Chargers I mean the Chargers can never be healthy so we're probably not gonna do much better but 
Um, the Browns are going to be terrible again. They don't have anything. and They're always terrible. Yeah. And then the Rams aren't – they just fired their, their head coach. So they're And they only won two games last year, so they're not going to do that well. And trying to input a new rookie quarterback who probably shouldn't have gotten drafted number one overall last year. He'll be – you know, it'll be his second year, but – He's, I just don't feel like he's as good as everyone thinks he is in Jared Goff. And so he just won't. I don't think he'll play as well. And then the Niners just, there's so much going on in, with the Niners now. They're, I mean, they've just got so much drama with firing their head coach and, and who's going to play quarterback and who's going to play where and what. And, you know, it's, it's just going to, I feel like there's going to be too much around the team to, for them to be able to really focus on the season and for them to really play well. And you know, I I pretty much agree with you on everything. I had the Patriots, the Packers, the Falcons, you know, in no specific order up top. Then the bottom, just because I'm a Niners fan, I put the Jets instead of the Niners. Uh, that, so I have I mean, the Browns, the Jets, and the Rams. Because I figure the Jets are about as bad as the Niners. It's still. true. So I kind of went with that. <laughs> but I think it'll be an interesting NFL season. You know, I really agree with you that I really think the Patriots are probably far and out the best team. Um, is if they stay healthy, if Gronk's healthy and Tom Brady's healthy, I don't think there's a team that's going to stop them. Yeah. But we'll leave that and we'll get back to NFL, you know, once the season gets closer as far as talking about the teams. But there was a new study that came out that showed that 110 out of 111 brains that were donated by former NFL players showed signs of CTE Mm -hmm. and a lot of concussions. And the question is, is football too physical? You know, what can they do? Um, yes, I think that it is a little too physical. And I think that it's motivated by fans. I think fans a lot of times motivate how the game is played. And fans like big hits. Fans like, you know, those like touchdowns and big hits. That's what they enjoy. That's what people want to see. And so for those big hits, 75% of the time the players – the players that are getting hit don't get back up. I mean, they're getting hurt much more often. Players are getting hurt much more often. And so I think that's something that the NFL Rules Committee needs to go over. And I think that they need to adopt the rugby tackling rule, which um, which the rugby tackling rule, for what some pe- if some people don't know, is you have to come into a tackle with your arms ready to wrap up. You cannot come into a tackle with your arms tucked into your chest. You cannot. That is completely illegal, and you will in rugby you'd get put in the sin bin, which is basically a penalty box. But um, you know you get flagged, and so if you're not going to wrap up a player, if you have your arms out, it's a lot harder to come in and lay out a big hit because you know you can't dive, you can't really force a lot of momentum with your you know driving your arms through your chest, and so. If, if the Especially NFL, where you can't lead with your helmet. Yeah, exactly. And so if the NFL adopted the the rule, the rugby tackling rule, I think it'll eliminate a lot of those head-to-head hits. It'll eliminate a lot of those huge forceful hits that don't go penalized because they aren't really against the rules, but that need to be against the rules. And so it's, you know, there's, there's a couple things, but there's, I, I read a lot about that study and I read the, you know, final paperwork on it. And of those 111 brains that were donated, um, I think 88% of the brains were donated by either defensive or offensive linemen. So the stats are a little skewed because 
linemen are big. They take big hits because they're having to block and do things like that. So it is a little skewed, but it, it should be the same thing. I mean, it, the, we, you have to think about those players. You have to play, think about the players that are, you know, in the trenches doing those things. The linemen that, you know, really aren't. I mean, I bet you a majority of the players couldn't name the starting five linemen for the Patriots, the most popular team in the, in the NFL. I couldn't. I couldn't name a single lineman on the on the Patriots team right now. So, you know, I the, could name their positions, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but it's you know, it's the those players are the ones that are getting hurt, but no one realizes it. It's when the star players get hurt, and that's that's another thing that that the NFL needs to take more into account is, you know, how to in, how to decrease injuries in linemen because no one talks about it, no one worries about it, and so it's you know those players need to be thought of instead of just when a star player like when Antonio Brown got hit a couple of years ago in the playoffs to, to force him out of the game. And, you know, instead of when the Steelers lost two offensive linemen earlier in the season because of head hits, because of concussions. And so those are the things the NFL needs to be take more seriously and they need to deal with more more seriously than, than they they do than they do now right and i think you know I, I i heard somewhere i don't remember if it was the herd with colin coward or undisputed with skip and shannon mm -hmm. that they mentioned that these brains were probably a little bit older players mm -hmm. that football has changed the equipment and the rules are more geared for player safety now i do think that there is room for improvement you know we can always be better at protecting players but at the same time, some of these were pro most of them were probably older players, and we have already taken steps. So only time will tell if the steps that we've taken are enough or if we need to keep going. Mm -hmm. But last topic in NFL is about Colin Kaepernick still not having a team. And, you know, do you think he needs a team, or do you think that, you know, it's right for him to basically still be searching? Um, uh, I don't know. I think I, me personally, from what I've seen, from what I saw of him last year, I don't think he's talented enough. I don't like everyone's talking about how he's got the skill, he's got the talent and every NFL team just is blackballing him because he's, he speaks out about it, which one, I don't think is true because there's like the Browns, the Browns have never had an issue with hiring with signing a player that that you know breaks laws that does different things that you know the browns the cowboys different teams have never had issues with that with signing players that speak out against public related issues that speak out in the public they have never had an issue with signing those players and so i just think that he's just not good enough he doesn't fit into any offense in the league he's a he's a college player that's what he is. And so he played well under a college system. When the when the Niners played with <clears throat> Harbaugh as their head coach, he one, he made players better than they were. Harbaugh's a dominant coach. He's a great coach. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> he made Kaepernick better. And so as you noticed, when they hired Kelly, he got worse. And he just wasn't he just wasn't good enough to start on a terrible team. And yes, he had decent stats at the end of the season last year, but he really didn't play that well. I mean, they weren't playing that good of teams either. And so 
I just don't think he's good enough, and I don't think he fits into any offensive system in the league. He's just not an NFL player. He is a college player. You know, and I think, you know, this is the one thing that I don't necessarily agree, is I feel like he should have a team, but he should be a backup. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't know 100% if he's a starter. Um, Shannon Sharp the other day stated on Undisputed that the Ravens should sign him now that Joe Flacco's been injured. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he fits their team. I don't know a lot. But I think he does have the skills to play in the NBA, but not to be a star. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that being mobile will help a little bit, especially as a backup. Mm-hmm. He goes in a little bit, either just to, you know, throw the wildcat in once in a while. Yeah. You know, he would be, you know, like you said, he's a college player. But at the same time, I do think that he's better than probably, you know, a third of the backups that are in the league. So him not having a team. I think does boil a lot down to the protest rather than anything else, because I think he should be a backup. You know, I yeah. think that some teams should take a chance on him as a backup, mm-hmm. but nobody is for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and I understand that. And I, you know, I see where you're coming from. And for me, I think from what I'm seeing, at least is it boils down to the system. I mean, team systems just aren't, aren't built for a player that is as mobile as he is. And, you know, he's, as the last two years have shown, he's not as willing to run outside the pocket as he was when Harbaugh was the coach. He doesn't, he doesn't scramble as much as he did when Harbaugh was the coach, which made him a better player, which made him better because when he was willing to scramble, when he was willing to run outside the pocket and make plays, he did well, he did decently. Um, But when he's not, willing to do that, which the last two years has shown that he's not willing to. He he can't pass from the pocket. He's not accurate enough. He can't hit his targets. And so I just don't think that any offensive system fits for him. And yeah, he's probably talented enough to get a backup spot. But if I was a coach, I would look for players that fit my system in the NFL. Because really, how different is the talent? He's not that much better than that third that aren't as good as him. He's not that much better. And so for me, I'd look for players that fit my system, and he just doesn't fit. You know, if, if I were any team in the league you, uh, looking for a backup quarterback or maybe to push my quarterbacks, I would consider Seattle and Carolina. Because mm-hmm. you look at the two quarterbacks who are fairly mobile in the league, and you know Cam Newton and Russell Wilson have shown that they're both mobile. Mm-hmm. Um whether or not they're 100% mobile is different. But even to bring in Cap just to push them, mm-hmm. to say, hey, this guy might fit our system, you've got to play better. Yeah, They would be two teams that I would maybe consider taking a look at him, probably mm-hmm. more than others, if system is the biggest issue. Yeah, and it proves. And, I mean, Seattle was probably the closest team to signing him this year. And Seattle proved that they don't want him. And I'm not really sure what the reasoning was behind it. And, you know, um, Carroll's always been a coach that is willing to bring on players like that. That's willing, that wants that competition in training camp. That wants the people fighting for spots. And so, their I guess their thought behind it. I'm not really sure why. It just uh, it doesn't really make sense. If any team was to sign him, I think Seattle would probably be the top choice. Because I mean, I don't know much about Carolina, but from what I from what I've seen, they already have uh, a backup quarterback who's. Not great, but who's on contract for a while. So, you know, it's, you know, that money boils down to it again. But 
It's just, it's hard to say because we don't really know what they're thinking and what the ownership and, and the front offices are going through and thinking about when trying to sign a player like that. But we can only speculate from what we're seeing. And from what I'm seeing, I just don't think he's good enough. Fair enough. So let's wrap this up really quick with two fan questions. First one is define a diehard fan. And for me, I struggle with this one because I feel like diehard, it's all subjective. And Chase and I are both members of a group, Utah Jazz, Utah Jazz Diehard Unite. And I struggle sometimes with the comments that are put in this group because if one person doesn't necessarily agree with what somebody else did or... You know, when people were burning the Hayward jerseys and somebody said, this is ridiculous, they called them out for not being as diehard. Or if you were truly as diehard as me, you'd understand why I'm doing this. And to me, that's bull. You know, I think that everybody shows diehard in a different way. I bet you there are fans out there that can name more about the jazz, historically, stat line, whatever, that are more diehard than somebody who goes out and burns a jersey and says they're diehard and they did it because they felt angry. Mm-hmm. So I feel like as far as defining a diehard fan, you define yourself if you're a diehard fan and go with it from there. Exactly. I think it's all opinionated and all based on us, based on each person individually. And I mean, I call myself a diehard fan because I've followed the team for years. I've always been a fan ever since I can remember. And <clears throat> and I can name almost every single starting lineup that they've had since they moved to Utah. That's why I call Even myself Even all the ones starter. we've had last year. Huh? Including all the different lineups last year. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's so, I mean, I've always followed the jazz. I've, you know, it's something that's always interested me and I always enjoy, you know, knowing stats and knowing different things like that. And so that's why I call myself a diehard fan. But I know a lot of people that <clears throat> call themselves diehard fans. A lot of my friends call themselves diehard fans of certain teams and they could aim their starting lineup right now. So, I mean, it's, it's all opinionated on the, on the person and I think it's I mean diehard is completely different than what it was 15 years ago I mean fandom is becoming completely different I mean 15 20 years ago it was all about teams yeah there were great Michael Jordan great star powers but everyone supported their team they you know it was it was more about teams now it's more about LeBron and Kyrie and Durant and Steph and you know players it's more player centric more player fandom and so i feel like that's you know the era of fandom has changed right so i mean on that note like if you were a fan of gordon hayward if you liked his game you know let's say that you followed him when he was at butler was mm-hmm. it was butler wasn't it butler yep that's what i thought so when he was at butler obviously i don't know my facts about gordon hayward but when he was at butler you know let's say that you followed him into the nba you're a college fan you say, oh, I really liked this kid. I'm going to follow him in the NBA. And now he goes over to Boston. Does that mean you're not a diehard fan? I don't think so because you want you liked Hayward. Mm-hmm. You didn't like the Jazz. Yeah. You followed him from before, and it's exactly what you were saying. It's player-oriented, and you define yourself if you're a diehard, and don't let anyone else tell you differently. Exactly. And so that's, you know, it's, it's the same. You know, Butler fans are probably all – Throwing away their Jazz jerseys and buying Celtics jerseys. It's just how it is. And so, you know, a fan is a fan no matter what anybody says. You could be a fan yourself and be completely different than another fan who's a fan of the same thing. And you can have completely different views on everything. It doesn't matter. 
A fan is a fan. Just please don't be a bad wagon fan. <laughs> Not a fan of bandwagon fans, but be a fan. Be a fan. <laughs> yeah, be a fan. So last topic, last question is about referees. Is a foul a foul at any time of the game? You know, are refs more lenient or less lenient to call a foul at certain times during a game or during certain games? And should that be the case? You are a referee, Chase. What do you think? I would like to say that a foul is a foul, no matter what, but it's not. I mean, as an official, you go into games and you go into certain situations, especially if you know the teams, if you've officiated for each team. You go in knowing what teams like to do. You go in knowing how you need to control the game and keep the game moving. Because momentum is a huge part of all sports. Momentum is huge. In football, and basketball, in anything, momentum is huge. And so you don't, as an official, you don't want to be that person that completely destroys momentum. You can't. You, it's not enjoyable for anyone, especially as an official. You want momentum. And so you have to go in thinking about the playing styles of certain teams and how they like to do it and be able to call in a way that makes it flow, makes the game keep a good flow to the game. So as, as a majority of the time, as how we like, uh, most officials like to call games, we are a lot more, we are a lot tighter, a lot more strict at the beginning of the game. Because if you're strict at the beginning of the game, then you don't have to reel things in. You don't have to, call the games won't get out of control usually so if you're able to call things at the beginning and be able to set a precedent for at the beginning of the game there are things that you do not have to call at the end of the game because you know that one the players won't get out of control because you know you've 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 had good control of the game and the players understand that you've had good control of the game and two that it just they don't happen if you've had good control of the game those physical you know, flagrant type flouts don't happen if you have good t- good control of the game, a major a high majority of the time, and so fouls usually are called a lot more often at the beginning than they are at the end, and their you know officials are a lot more strict at the beginning. I mean, I I usually will put up with coaches a lot more at the end of the game because you don't want to decide the game for the teams. You don't want to give a technical out that decides the game. And so you're a lot more lenient at the end with coaches and with different, you know, scenarios and stuff like that than you are at the beginning. And so it's it's just how, as a good official, you try and do that. And so, you know, the games that get out of control, the games that have technicals and flagrants all the time, you can usually trace it back to how the official officiated at the beginning of the game. And that's just how. And I that's why I'm not a. That's why I'm not an official because I would be terrible. Because to me, a foul is a foul. It comes back to MLS. You know, me being a soccer fan, and like Kai Kamara is a very big guy. Fernando Adi for Portland Timbers. They're big guys, and people foul them, but the refs do not give them the benefit of the foul because they're such big guys. Um, you know, with me, I like to play soccer. We had a soccer tournament yesterday. And I had a little 14-year-old try to muscle me off the ball, and he bounced off me, and they called a foul. And I was like, okay, that's not a foul. Where on the other side, you know, if I were to get rocked and I was bigger, they might not call a foul just because I'm bigger and I can handle it. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'd rather see a foul as a foul and let players adjust to that. 
because it's not worth the, the subjectiveness of everything. Mm-hmm. Where in the NBA, oh, he touched him, that's a foul. Okay, then call it a foul every time and let players adjust their game. Yeah, that's the way I see it. I know it's not possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm realistic. I know that that's never going to happen. But I do not like how this is a foul on one person or not a foul on another. Kind of like what people say about LeBron. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he is fouled harder than other people, but because of his strength, it doesn't look as bad. And to me, you know, LeBron flops. You know, I think he's one of the king of floppers, not the king of Akron. But at the same time, he is fouled hard. A lot of the time, but because of his size, he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. And I think that refs should at least look at that aspect. That's true. Of size shouldn't matter mm-hmm. and, in officiating. Yeah, and that's that's what's difficult. That's one of the most difficult parts about officiating is being able to differentiate between size and being able to you know allow things like that. And the majority of the time, a lot of a lot of rule books go into advantage disadvantage. So in a particular play. Does a player gain an advantage by that foul? And does the player being fouled gain a, a significant disadvantage? And if that happens, if an advantage is gained or disadvantage is gained, then that's when a foul should be called. And so it's like if a small player is dribbling in and an offensive player, I mean, a defensive player is set up in the post and the offensive player hits the defensive player and bounces off of them, is that a charge? The defensive player was set. The defensive player was in proper defensive position, but he didn't fall over. He didn't go back. He didn't, you know, the the off the offensive player didn't have the size to really push him over. Is that a charge? I would never call that a charge because no disadvantage was gained by the defensive player. The defensive player was in proper defensive position, was the one who could have been disadvantaged by the offensive player running into him. But since it was the offensive player who created the contact, he, he's the one who fell off, who, I guess, gained the disadvantage because of his play, of his, you know, action. See, and I, I completely agree with what you're saying, but I mm-hmm. feel like referees would call that a block True. because of the size. It could be. And that, that's where I struggle yeah. is I think you're exactly right in what you're saying mm-hmm. is don't call a foul. Mm-hmm. Just because two people run into each other does not mean there is a foul. Yeah. But in the NBA specifically, like you're talking about, I feel like the offensive player, if there's any contact, it doesn't matter if the defensive player's in good position or not, there's a foul call. And that that's where I struggle because I do like to play defense and I'm a defensive-minded person. And so when I see that, referees are more like, okay, that's a foul where, you know, like Isaiah Thomas bouncing off someone, he's going to get the benefit of the foul called because it looks 100 times worse than it is. It's true. And that's that's something that you have to be able to see the whole play, and you have to, as an official, you have to realize that at the beginning of the game, you have to come in with that mindset. And so it's, and I hate to say this, but there's not a lot of good officials. There's officials out there that aren't good, and I hate saying that. I hate saying, you know, I hate being that type of an official that says there's a lot of not very good officials, which there are. There are a lot, of, and even in the college and foot and professional ranks. There's officials that aren't good, that got there by, you know, name, by knowing people, things like that. And it's, it's, they've been there so long that they can't get rid of them. Exactly. And so it's, you know, they, it's sad, but it's, it's where officials have to be better. Officials have to be better at what they do. They have to come into games and be more prepared and be better at what they do. And then that's when those, pl- those, those situations will be better controlled. 
Right. And I think that comes back to your LeVar, LeVar Ball statements that people are going to have to understand officials for there to be better officials. But that's going to be all the time that we've got today. Thank you for listening to the Sports ABCs with Andrew, Brandon, and Chase. Please check out our Facebook page, The Sports ABCs. And we also have an email for fan questions, thesportsabcs at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Whoa!